Don't look now. Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hegeman, coming to you with our tales of the strange, interesting, and I'm not sure what all else. But uh, as always, I am, I am left in the dark as to our topic. So Jenny is the sole keeper of what we're talking about today. So Jenny, lead us off. What are we, what are we talking about? Um, today we're going to talk about mama bear complex, um, or as I would like to call it, the vigilante mom story. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, um, I just want to preface this with, I know this is going to be a super bummer of a story. However, (laughs) Good to know. Check. All right. As a reminder, I'm a dark damn person, apparently, who is interested in trauma and how it affects everything. So. Alrighty. This is not a super exciting, like, happy ending story. It's it's a total bummer of an ending. Um, but I kind of wanted to point out a few things. So things to be learned um, is that the justice system, when it comes to victims, only serves to find justice to the defendant, if that makes sense. So, like, yeah. If you're a victim of violent crime, it does not actually work towards helping, helping the victim you. work through that trauma. Yep. Yep. Um, and also, I'd like to point out that not all trauma is a like pipeline to being an offender. So just because a child is traumatized does not mean that they will later become an offender. Yep. There's a lot of factors that go into that. Sounds good. That just does remind me, you know, way back taking anthro classes. I remember them talking about justice systems in different parts of the world and what they were geared toward. Yeah. And how ours was very geared toward what we considered, yeah, basically justice meted upon the offender. That punish the offender, you do whatever to the offender to, you know, whatever, but it, it is not meant to serve justice to the offended. It is not about proper recompense for who was hurt or to make them as unhurt as possible or whatever else it's, you know, on the other side. And at the time I was like, I had never thought about that before, but it's totally true. So. Yeah. It's kind of depressing because you, I think we've all been kind of lied to when it comes to the idea of justice that you'll feel better once this criminal's behind bars yes to a point but you still have to work through whatever trauma that criminal imposed upon you so like there's some traumas that the long-lasting effects of the like the offense mm-hmm. really aren't that long-lasting so like identity theft well yeah it takes a couple years to get your shit back together it's not yep. a detrimental life altering yep. event yep your daily behavior has not been altered for the rest of your life yeah exactly exactly yep yeah no i mean it was just interesting i mean i you know just an example i mean they're they're obviously far more complicated horrible things but it was just saying in certain places like when someone committed a crime it wasn't about you know say someone steals something from somebody else the justice system was more concerned with the person that stole giving proper recompense to the person they stole from as opposed to the person who stole being punished enough 
to do whatever. It wasn't about putting them in jail for X amount of time. It was making sure that they paid back the person that they stole it from plus something. And if they needed to be incarcerated and work it off to do that, they did it. But it's all about them paying restitution in some way to the person or family that they offended. At least that was the primary goal of the system. Right. And I mean, I get it if you're using the restitution to like get help actually for what's going on, that's okay. But really that's part of like when they do the parole hearings, I think that the victim should be brought back and be like, so have you gotten help? And if you have like, good for you, let's talk about where you're at with that process. Because if you're releasing this same person, like they, a lot of prisoners have access to a lot more services and psychiatric care than the victims do. And it's just kind of a depressing. I think that prisoners absolutely, by the way, should have access to these things. I hundred percent do. I just think it's very frustrating that sometimes the victims are right back to the same situation they were in that got them to where they got to this place. Yeah. All right. Sorry for the aside there, but yeah, I found that interesting because I just, you know, was just framed in a way that like, oh, I, you know, tell hearing that I'm like, it never really, it never really occurred to me because that's just how justice was meted out. And I think it's really important to think of this story from that perspective, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. Because this is. It's all <laughs> we're going here. fun places. All right. Yeah. So uh, we're going to start. Uh, the story is from the not so distant past. We were both youngins. Um, probably about five, six years old for me, maybe a little bit older for you. I think you're only a hot minute older than me. Yeah. Um, yeah I've got about six years on you or something, something like that. Maybe. Somewhere so, in there. Basically, the story is about a mother who at the time was thought of as this avenging angel and this local folk hero. And then she has a total fall from grace and it totally destroyed everything including the life that she was trying to save with her actions so here it goes ellie netzler was the eldest of three daughters born to a coal miner and his wife and grew up in the hill country around jamestown california Um, as a youngster she drove a tractor for the local cattle ranchers she dug ditches she instilled installed irrigation pipes and worked on cars Uh, she got married and divorced pretty young And then she met Bill Nessler, who was a gold miner and a crop duster. They got married. They had their son, Willie. And then they moved to Gold Rush country in Liberia to seek their fortune. Wow. Yeah. Liberia in the 90s just sounds weird to me. Right? Not my idea of places to run to, but sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Did not know there was a gold rush in Liberia, so... Yes, there was. Um, So then she, while they're there in Africa, uh, she gives birth to a daughter. Uh, But then there's a civil war that broke out in Liberia. So Ellie and her kids return home, but her husband stayed in Liberia. After returning to, um, I cannot say the name of this county. I thought I could, but it looks like Twolumna County. It's Jamestown, Jamestown, California. Um, she basically got by, by getting welfare and chopping wood. Um, this, she moved back home by where her family was. And one summer decides that, you know, it's been enough time. Her son's old enough. 
he can go to this church camp um, that they their church was putting on. So she sends him to this summer camp. And then the young boy, Willie, starts acting really strange after he comes back from summer camp. And he's just really not acting like himself. He's, you know, starting to act out. And it's very confusing to the family. Well, during a sleepover at his aunt's house a few months after the summer camp ended, he confided to his aunt that a man by the name of Dan Driver, who was a dishwasher at the summer camp, had done nasty things to him. So a bunch of allegations come to a head between the time of July 1986 and September of 1988. Dan Driver had allegedly abused several um, seven or seven children um, and had a warrant placed for his arrest in 1989 for child molestation charges. But they didn't find him until December of 1992. Wow. Not because they had a successful manhunt, but because they caught him shoplifting in Palo Alto. <laughs> well, interesting. Yeah. It's super depressing to me. Super depressing. So Dan Driver was arrested in Palo Alto for theft and then returned home to Jack- Jamesville, California. Jamestown. Jamestown. California to face the charges of the molestation of Nestler's son and three other boys. Now it's during this trial that it's revealed that several years prior, Dan driver had pled guilty to multiple counts of sex with boys in the San Jose area. But of course he'd been given probation after the judge in the case received numerous letters from Mm. members of the church vouching for his character. That's just depressing. Super gross. It's super gross, not only that like church members did it, but then that there's nothing on his record for that. Yeah, and that is something that listening to true crime crime podcasts and all that kind of stuff seemed especially through the 70s, you know, early 80s. Yep. Especially sex crimes, just... People just got turned loose. I mean, it was like, I mean, somebody would attack a woman with an axe and rape her in the woods and they would get, you know, five years and be out on probation in two. And you're like, what the hell? Like, you know, yep. It, I mean, it seemed super consistent just over and over and over again that, you know, people were, they just weren't taking crimes like that seriously. And I don't know, you know, I mean, there are multiple factors there, but it seems like, I don't know if people weren't into the onto the concept of escalation that, I mean, all these things looked like, you know, this person is clearly on their way to being a serial sadist and murderer, you know, and they keep ending up there and they always have these earlier arrests for horrible things that like never put them away, never really seemed to clue people into what was going on. And I, I don't want to sound like the people that, or all the, you know, super, we need to punish everyone, throw everybody in jail, you know, throw away the key, you know, it's all about longer sentences. There are just certain things like that, you know, basically sexual assaults, aggravated sexual assault, all that sort of stuff just seemed to get. Well, and remember, this was at the same, same kind of time period as the satanic panic, right? So like yeah. that 80s and early 90s period of time, it just really bugs me that that is 
that all had been going on. That was in the news, but yet still, you know, we have this kind of crap happening. Yeah. Just, but John over here is a nice guy and goes to church. He's not, you know, I'm worried about Satanists, not, not exactly. friendly neighborhood pedophile that is, you know, yeah, it's, it's messed up, you know? Yeah. He was a good God fearing man. Why would he hurt anyone? Right. <laughs> yeah. God. Eh. So during the time between the actual molestation and the court trial, Willie would tell his family and tell everybody that would listen that he was terrified that driver was going to come kill him and his family. Um, because he had told the boy that if he told anybody what happened, he was going to come kill them. And, you know, he like held that against him that I'm going to kill yeah. your mother. I'm going to kill you. The little boy just started having nightmares. He was having problems in school. Um, he was really depressed. Anything that you can imagine, just anxiety for a small child whose yeah. whole psyche is built on this and is about to be publicized everywhere. What happened to him? Yeah. So on the day of the preliminary hearing, he wakes up and vomits, gets to the court, like he gets to the parking lot at the courthouse and vomits. He's sitting outside waiting to go in and they walk his accused molester by him. Jesus. And the guy stops and smiles at him. And his aunt was like, it looked like he was like laughing almost which i'm sure that's how you feel i don't know if that's what really happened yeah. but i'm sure that that's how she felt yeah. at that moment and of course this poor kid is just terrified he's super sick it was bad so the whole morning they're running this pre this prelim trial and some of the other boys start to testify and they go to have their noontime recess and one of the moms comes out and goes, this is not going well. And all these little kids are trying to testify. All the parents are super anxious. The kids are all terrified because they're terrified this guy's going to get off and then kill everybody for telling people. Mm -hmm. And the parents are convinced that this guy is going to walk because they kept like asking the kids questions. And then if the kids didn't answer the way that they wanted them to, it looked really bad. So yeah. like, They'd be like, well, where did he touch you? And the kids are embarrassed and they're scared. And they're in a room full of people they don't know talking about very embarrassing things with this guy standing, staring them down. Yeah. So they would answer, but they maybe wouldn't answer as fully as they would if it had been just them and like the judge, mm -hmm. for instance. And so Ellie Nessler is getting super like anxious about this. I honest to Pete, I totally get that. She's like, this guy's going to walk. And our kids are not doing well. So right after lunch, her son's supposed to testify and he's getting worse. Like he, this poor kid just can't stop throwing up. He's shaking. He's refusing to go in. And mom just kind of looks at him and she's like, I am not putting my goddamn kid through this. So she walks out to her car, gets a gun, walks back into the courtroom and shoots Dan driver five times in the head and in the neck. So yeah. He yep. dies and her kid doesn't have to testify, which is great. Kind of <laughs> so the immediate reaction, of course, is total support. The public is yep. like, yep, we, this child molester's dead. We're so glad to hear this. Flowers flooded her jail where she was being held. Um, people paid for her legal defense and people really truly believed that justice had been served. And remember, we're talking about, 
the West. So it's kind of like frontier justice had been served. And the community was like, what jury would convict a mother from protecting her son from testifying against his molester? And like people made bumper stickers, there were t-shirts, they had signs and they protested in support of her outside of the jail. So she becomes this total folk hero, this whole legend and people just really supported her. Um, And one of the articles I read said that there were three elements that appealed to the whole world, a sympathetic defendant, a dramatic setting and the picturesque historical context. So basically you have this mom who looks like this wholesome, sweet person protecting her child. You have this really dramatic courtroom and then it's in this wild West style town is how they described it. I doubt that's what this town is like, but that's how it's described. (laughs) Yeah. And so reporters start to flood town and they start to go up to everybody in the town and ask them questions. So I pulled my two favorite responses from the townsfolk about their opinion on what happened. So one reporter goes up to a man who he identifies as whiskers because he has a large whiskered beard (laughs) and asks him what his opinion on Ellie is. And his response is if she had one of these and then pulls out a foot long revolver she wouldn't have wasted all that ammunition. (laughs) Very, very, very frontier style. Yeah. And then another one says, we have to hold a trial for Nestler by law. So we'll find her innocent. And then we'll build a statue of her on the courthouse lawn. Like they just really believed her. They were super supportive of what she had done. Um, and one of the, the tactics that they used at the trial was to make her look like this innocent avenging angel. So like um, when, when Casey Anthony went to trial for mm-hmm. her murdering her daughter, I don't know if you know, they put her in this like really demure clothing. Oh yeah. Really conservative, no makeup, hair pulled back. Like, so it's kind of a, a show for the court. Um, it's one of the tactics that they do for women in court, especially. Um, same thing for like, a gangbuster, you don't go in wearing low slung jeans and a you know white yep. beater, you go in wearing a suit. So they put her in what they described as a little bow beat dress, which was a blue gingham dress with puffy sleeves, and she was holding a single white rose throughout her trial. But then people kind of start to notice that while she's in the trial, that like she smiles just a little bit too much. She flirts just a little too freely. She is reporting jokes in the newspaper. Um, And in one report, she says, for someone who, or one reporter described her as, for someone who's so recently pumped five bullets into a man's head, she's remarkably serene and oftentimes jolly. Yeah. Yeah. And privately, she was bragging about her marksmanship that she was a real good shot to aim and do as well as she had. Now here's wild speculation. I have a feeling, but it was in one of the articles I read. Supposedly she would threaten her kids because she'd already proven that she could do the worst to someone that she could do. So she would like kind of hold that as a threat over her kids. Okay. So this is when the character assassination starts to begin. So also known as a trial. On the day of the shooting, turns out Mama was high on methamphetamines. 
She also had a previous record of boosting cars when she was 18. So suddenly the court had created two people. We had Ellie, the avenging angel, and Ellie, the strung out druggy vigilante. So she entered a plea of not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. However, she was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. After serving four years of her 10-year sentence, she was released from prison. Unfortunately, her family's troubles were far from over. Okay. So poor Willie, um, during a 1999 Oprah show follow-up on the story, it was revealed that Willie was sent away to boot camps throughout his teenage years. Um, he needed a lot of help and he needed a lot of support, but they really couldn't help him with her in jail and not having the means financially to assist him. She said she always regretted the pain she caused her kids. And in hindsight, she wouldn't have done it. And then in 2001, Ellie was arrested for selling and possessing meth. So she pleads guilty. The following year, she was sentenced to six more years in prison. While she's serving her time, 23-year-old Willie was having some problems with the law. In 2004, he stomped a man to death in a fit of rage and ended up going sent to jail for 28 years for murder in the first degree. In June of 2006, um, Ellie was unable to visit Willie in prison because she was in the final stages of a long battle with breast cancer. And she ended up dying in December 26th of 2008. So her daughter that was born in Liberia um, was just 23 years old when she buried her mother. And she says that her older brother was not allowed to leave prison for the funeral. He did ask for leave, but it was denied. Um, and on this episode of Oprah, Oprah, of course, you know, they were on all the talk shows. I just want to point this out. They were on... Okay you know, Maury, they were on Oprah, but the Oprah article was um, particularly fascinating because they went back years later to see the family. So Oprah says, y'all suffered because your mom in an active rage in the courtroom didn't want to see that molester go free again. Any mother or father watching can understand what that rage feels like. Very dramatic, very Oprah. Mm -hmm. Since Ellie and Willie have been in prison for most of Rebecca's life, she hasn't really ever been able to move forward. So she says it's been really hard to move on and have a normal life. She says, I'll catch myself laughing with family. I'll sit back and I'll be like, you know, mom and Willie should really be here with me in this moment. They should be able to laugh with me and have this moment too. Uh, she was somewhat lucky in that she had the support of her loved ones who took her in while mom was in prison. Um, she's living a pretty normal life, got married and had kids, but it's milestones like her wedding that she really misses them because like her brother wasn't able to walk her down the aisle. Her mom wasn't at her graduation, you know, these big milestones in your life to have people that important in your life missing is, is pretty hard. Yeah. And she speculates wildly that she doesn't think her brother would be in prison today if it wasn't for her mom shooting um, the guy, Dan Davis. Um, she said, you know, he even tells me, He's over the molestation. What really hurt him was that mom was in jail. So in October 2008, she gets to go visit her brother for the first time in two years with the Oprah show. And she says she's really nervous about seeing him because 
it's really hard to say goodbye to her best friend every time that they leave. She said, mom was my best friend, but once she died, Willie really stepped up into that role, which makes me so sad. Anyhow, um, she got to meet with her brother for two and a half hours with a legal correspondent from NBC, uh, but no cameras were allowed inside the prison. And the legal correspondent said that like most of the time that they're interviewing people in prison, prisoners like really blame other people or they're angry or they talk about their innocence. Um, And this guy didn't do any of that. He was just really like sincere, really introspective, really thoughtful about things and about what led him to ending up in the place that he was at. Um, And they asked him, you know, you have this scar with your life. Nothing's going to fix that. But have you moved on? And he's like, yeah, you know, I think I moved on. The thing that really hurt was losing all the people that I cared about, which. Yeah. Anyhow, um, apparently the brother and sister are still very close. They write letters to each other every single day. And they said, when you talk to him, it's just really clear that his family is the most important thing to him. Apparently, even though he's claimed that he's moved past the molestation, he will mention um, his pretty girlfriends from prison. And the legal correspondent thinks that there's some sort of, there's that's like that machismo to try to get past it to be like, yeah. Hey, I'm not that guy. I have all these lovely people that love me. Um, but he also wants to not be that kid. And that was really hard for him growing up because, you know, he didn't want to testify because he didn't want people to know what had happened to him. Then his mom goes and shoots a guy. So he doesn't have to testify. But then of course, like it's all over the papers anyway, mm-hmm. because they want to know why she shot him. So it was very traumatic in that aspect so Rebecca says that she just misses her brother terribly and he was always a really good brother he always took really good care of her um, and that it's not only her that really misses him but he also has a kiddo that is not living in that state that is not being able to be a part of her brother's life which just makes her really really sad And it is likely that he will be in prison until 2031, which is the year he's eligible for parole. And he'll be about 43 years old. Yeah. Hmm. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Something that I found really interesting, I guess is the right word. Yeah. Ellie, in the course of methamphetamine haze, I guess, decided that it would be a good idea to take part in a pool on her verdict of her own trial with the reporters. <laughs> Hopefully she bet on a not guilty plea. Just, you know, it's a little depressing if you're betting on your own guilt, but yeah. They didn't say specifically what she did, but yeah, that's just really twisted. Um, also, there's a particularly disturbing 90s, like, made for tv movie about the whole situation there's a lot of famous people in it but not famous people that you would like no yeah they're like people that are like that mom in that one movie that you watch or yeah, like that yeah. lady that was in that all the character movie. actors that you see all the time but don't know the names of kind of stuff yeah yeah, yeah. so like her lawyer is this guy that's in a ton of movies and you you see him in every movie but I swear to God, I could not tell you a single movie that he was in that you would know. Like I tried yeah. looking up so that I could tell you 
and there was nothing obvious to me but I know that there's a movie that it would be very obvious to everybody if I could think of like I just I can't sorry yeah but also these are like the 90s people so yeah anyhow um so yeah there's this really bad movie it's called Judgment Day the Ellie Nessler story and let me tell you what I watched it because it's on YouTube and it's for yeah. free and if that's the way the trial really went drugs or no drugs I would have shot that asshole too yeah because it was not the trial was not going well the backstory was bleak um they made the parents out to be psychos so like they made mom out to be this super hyper vigilant person who had never let her kids be around strangers before and that it was the kids fault that they had been molested like huh it was bad um and they had a psychologist say that driver wasn't a bad guy and that psychologically it's not likely he would reoffend even though he was there he already reoffended <laughs> yeah right uh. And then if you think that those things are bad enough, the dad, it, I don't think the dad actually came back at any point in time during the true story, but during the film he did. So the dad's in it. He's a total dick. The aunt takes the little boy to him and is like, Hey, we have something to tell you. And the little boy spills his heart out, tells his dad he was molested by this dude. His dad picks up a cigarette because it's the nineties and they smoke and everything smokes it and it's like these things happen go back to sleep God. i was like i'm sorry what <laughs> like it was Ugh. horrible mom had the right reaction i'm just putting that out there yeah. mom was like this isn't your fault you know all the good mom things that moms say the dad was a dick not getting over that so do you know if this had any inspiration for a time to kill I haven't seen anything that matches that. Okay. There's a lot of vigilante mom stories out there, though. Okay. I mean, that was a vigilante dad, but it was definitely the, you know, parent shooting the defendant that, you know, is going to get off kind of thing. So wasn't sure if you would come across any relation. Uh, no. But so what spurred me to looking into this, I actually was reading an article about a mom in, I'm saying South America, but it could have been Mexico. So I'm sorry to anyone I offend with my bad geography and memory, but her daughter had been kidnapped, raped and murdered. If I remember right by a gang and the cops couldn't do anything to help her. So mom like tracked these fuckers down and like single-handedly caught five of these gangbangers and turned them into the cops. Pretty sure after she beat the hell out of all of them, but she there's this pictures of this cute little Hispanic woman with really short hair. Mm -hmm. Apparently she chopped off her hair, became a master of disguises and would like hunt these fuckers down. And I was like, mama, <laughs> what? Um, sadly, she just recently was murdered outside of her home by the gang, but she got five of them. And mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty impressive. Took her a long time. Yeah. So that's what spurred this whole thing is I was going to do the whole freaking episode on her because I was like, man, now that's a mom. Turns out, guys, I can't speak Spanish. <laughs> um, I can understand a lot and I can read a lot, but my translation skills suck um, to the point that I can't swap. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, so then I thought I'd just give you some random ass facts on vigilanteism. 
The most common form of vigilantism in the United States was during the 20th century, um, and it was practiced during the early years of the civil rights movement, and that is lynching. Yep. Yeah, in the South, most common. And then here's another interesting one, just because I thought it was interesting. Um, Recognized since the 1980s, the Sombra Negra or the Black Shadow of El Salvador is a group of retired police officers and military personnel whose sole duty is to cleanse the country of impure social elements by killing criminals and gang members. Along with several other organizations, the Sombra Negra are the remnants of the death squads from the Civil War of the 70s and 80s. Wow. Yeah. Didn't realize how many like vigilante groups are active until I started reading about this, by the way. That's interesting. Yeah. You don't generally hear about them that much, so. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I gave you a real bummer of a story. Um, I thought maybe we could say something nice uh, since this kind of was terrible. (laughs) So you got to. Got something to bring this back up, or are we just, you know? <laughs> I don't really have anything to bring this back up. Um, I guess my my big point of excitement is just, you know, the year is coming to an end. We're getting closer to maybe having a light at the end of the tunnel with this vaccine. Whether or not people believe in the vaccine, I keep reminding people, don't rain on healthcare providers' parades right now. Um, the people that work at hospitals are very stressed out, and this yep. is literally the moment of hope that is sustaining them through the rest of this wave right now. So like you may not believe in the vaccine. That's fine. Please don't shit on other people's joy right now. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. Seems like a reasonable request. Yeah. But that is my, my joy is the vaccine is here. It's being rolled out. People are feeling hope and that that's never a bad thing for people to feel hope. So yep, we could use some for sure. Yeah. Uh. What about did, do you have anything exciting to tell us? Did you find the Jingle Bell Rock? I have not found the Jingle Bell Rock. This is the first time I've actually looked for the Jingle Bell Rock. So for those that are not from the Manhattan area, we have this big annual search for the Jingle Bell Rock or sometimes multiple Jingle Bell Rocks, which is basically a rock with some bells painted on it that is hidden somewhere in the general vicinity of Manhattan and the surrounding environs that... Uh, put together by local businesses and I guess you get cash and prices if you find this and they start reading clues on the radio at the beginning of December and it's gotten this far and no one has found it. Usually it gets snatched up before this but uh, Jenny sent me the clues so now I've gone down the rabbit hole and I'm you know coming up with a, a million different interpretations for every single clue now and it's I need somebody to find this damn thing so that I quit worrying about it because now I keep thinking of different stuff, but uh, no, I they had a new one, new one out today and I had a really great idea where I thought it was and it wasn't there. So, but, Oh, okay. Now I'm going to look. The, has your search been narrow or one quite spra- straight from our heart comes all these fine Christmas pledges. As for your search, you might find the tread, the edges. Yeah, that was the, that was on Friday and the new one today basically gave a, you know, basically listen for the the jingle, the rumble, and the roar, which is a line from the Wabash Cannonball. Yeah. So it's either implying K-State and specifically K-State sports or trains or, you know, 
whatever. I was thinking today, okay, you know, Nichols Hall is where that whole story of why the Wabash Cannonball became K-State's, you know, fight song, or unofficial fight song, basically, got started. And other things, you know, we're talking about, you know, choose one of two, and there are two famous old radio towers right next to Nichols Hall. And I'm like, yeah. hey, I'm going to, you know, nah, not there. But. Weird. Huh. Yep. I still have not finished my continued search for the taco guys. I, I did find the one and went up and looked at it and looked around and stuff. And there's no markings on it or anything to indicate where it's from or what is up with that. Do the other one seems to have disappeared, but I haven't gone looking to see if it's like on the ground or something now. So that one drives me crazy. I honestly, I can't find anything on it. It's making yep. me crazy. Not knowing. Yep. I have no idea what's up with the taco guy. Would have been cool if I went up there and found the Jingle Bell Rock with the taco guy, but I did not. So, Well, I'll tell you this much information about the Jingle Bell Rock. Um, last year, they found it in Marlat Park. So it's, okay. the, the clues say don't go that far. Yeah. No, it says this time around, that's okay. too far to the east. Yeah, they so found it in one. I thought they found it in Wamigo last time. Because the clue was basically, it's where there's a yellow brick road and whatnot. And I think last year was in Wamigo. So it's not any further east than Wamigo. In 2019, it was in Washington Marlat Park in the picnic area. Okay. Because the same guy has found it three times. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Also, do you have a, a hunting license to go look for it? No. You usually can pick them up at the grocery store. So if you get a hunting <laughs> license, you can get like double the prizes if you find it. Interesting. It's such a weird tradition. I just love it. It gets people out and like. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been happy just seeing you see people poking around all over town, wandering parks, kicking up leaves, doing whatever. So yeah. It's just kind of cool to see a whole bunch of people out, kind of like it was cool to see everybody wandering around playing Pokemon back when it blew up. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's fun. God, remember when Pokemon first blew up and everybody was just wandering all the time? Yep. You just phone. (laughs) Good times. Good times. Well, sorry I gave you a bummer of an episode, but... No, it was was very interesting and very, very sad, but yeah. It is sad, but it it is just totally explains how, you know what in the moment seemed like a good idea to help stop a lot of pain spurred a different kind of situation. Yeah. And that usually there is more going on behind some things than someone just, you know, Oh, for sure. Someone, whenever you've got vigilante justice and someone randomly decides to off somebody else, it's, it's never straightforward. There's gotta be some trauma or something behind that person, making them willing to just randomly shoot somebody. And right. that, you know, it's, it's always a mess. So, oh, boo. Yep. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, thank you for the story this week. And uh, as always, everybody, check out our Facebook page. You know, write us at don'tlooknow19 at gmail.com. Um, you know, like, subscribe, review. Uh, you know, check out Hollow State Audio, who do our intro and outro music. And uh, as always, thank you very much. And we'll, we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye bye, all.